Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. If something as great as the love of God that's been placed into your life and the hope that he's given, you can't shut up about it, if I can use that language here on the stage of the church. We're in 1 Kings 17 this morning. Two powerful prophets. We're going to be talking about power. How many know the same God who worked the miracles through the Old Testament is the same God that we serve today? How many people need a taste of God's power today? Let me tell you, when you have the opportunity and privilege to preach or to lead a Bible study, to study out scripture for a certain purpose... Oftentimes, God works it into your heart before he can speak it through your life and your message. Do you know what I'm saying? Oftentimes, when you have to stand in front of people with a message that God has given you, he has to work it through your life and teach you the principles of it before you can get up and share what God has placed on your heart. And I find this to be true more oftentimes than not. Two weeks ago, we talked about how God works in the quiet moments. And I experienced God working in the quiet moments, the land in between. And then last week we talked about instead of chasing what could be, focusing on our calling. Instead of striving after our potential, focusing on our purpose. And there are so many days where I ask myself, am I just chasing what could be? Am I just chasing potential or am I focused on my calling and my purpose and the reason why God has me here? Well, when I get to talk about God's power, God gives me a double dose of a need for his power. Let me tell you about this past week, and I'm not here to preach my own agenda or my own issues, but I want to give you an example this morning. Last Sunday, I got a case of the sniffles, and I think it was my son had the sniffles, but also that cold water down at the river, right, during those baptisms, And there were just, we were baptizing people left, right, and center, and we were just in that cold water so long, I think I developed a case of the sniffles. But if if we have people who want to be baptized, I'll do that every week. I'll take the sniffles every week if there are people who want to be baptized. Amen? The sniffles is totally worth it. But let me tell you, Monday came around, and it had developed, it had progressed, and it turned into a case of the man cold. (laughs) Dreaded, terrible epidemic among men and women. You just wouldn't understand the pain and the torment and the discomfort that we as men have to go through in a man cold. And Pastor Alex was giving me both gears about having a man cold and the snot was just coming down my face. And then, this past week, uh, we sold our house officially in New Brunswick, which we are thrilled about, so excited about. So we rented a U-Haul truck and went to New Brunswick to collect all the rest of our furniture on Thursday. And if you remember Thursday, they were calling for a tropical storm, right? So why not have a man cold driving a U-Haul in a tropical storm with all your earthly possessions in the back, right? I need a taste of God's power this week. How many people need God's power today? I don't know who I'm thinking of, but I believe God's placed somebody on my heart this morning who's in this room who needs God's power today. 
Maybe you've gone through sickness, you've gone through struggle, you've gone through storm. You just feel like this last season in life as you lead up to the fall season, things are going to just keep picking up and the bar is going to be raised and you don't feel you have the strength to reach the bar, let alone take the next step and you need God's power today. Let me assure you that those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall walk and not grow weary. They shall run and not grow faint. The Apostle Paul says, when I am weak, then am I strong. And there was one more that I wanted to tell you. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I love those promises in Scripture. It's so easy to rely on our own strength, and it may seem like work for a time, but there's always a limit, a capacity. Whereas God is omnipotent, as has already been mentioned this morning, he has all the power. So I want to do a little call and response sort of thing this morning. Are you up for that? Does this church do call and response? Does the audience congregation respond as we... Can we try it this morning? I'm going to say God is so powerful, and you're going to say... Okay, close. How powerful is he? So let's try it. God is so powerful. I like that. He is so powerful. He holds creation in the palm of his hands. In fact, God is so powerful. You're catching on. He is so powerful that he commands kings and lords and presidents and prime ministers of this earth. God is so powerful, powerful you're going to get sick of this really quick, aren't you? (laughs) God is so powerful that at his name, every knee should bow and tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. How powerful is God? Do you know how powerful God is? Did I mix that up? Did I get the script wrong? (laughs) God is so powerful that he can speak life where there was death. He can speak answers and hope into your broken situation. He can heal the brokenhearted. He can mend the wound. He can bring life where there is death. We serve a powerful God this morning. And that's the message of the next four weeks as we dig into Elijah and Elisha, two powerful prophets in the Old Testament. That's what we're going to be talking about. So let's get some backstory. The current king of Israel is the worst. He's just the worst. You remember how we ended talking last week that Israel split. The 12 tribes split. They lost sight on their purpose. They ran after preference and potential, and the people just decided to do whatever they wanted because when there's no king, the people do what's right in their own eyes, and they separated. So now there's the northern kingdom, as you can see on my map that I have up here. There's the northern kingdom, which is Israel, in the southern kingdom, which is Judah. And the king who's currently reigning in Israel is the worst king of all, Ahab. If you jump back a chapter, 1 Kings 16 and verse 33, it says this, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all of the kings of Israel who were before him. Ahab is a bad dude. That's saying something. All of the kings of Israel that were before him, Ahab was the worst. You see, Ahab had sold himself and the whole nation to Baal worship. Baal is the false god of fertility, of the weather, 
of the rain and the dew, they would sacrifice their kids to Baal so that they could have good crops that season. How terrible. And that's where the nation of Israel is at. God is so powerful. Let's look at 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead, he said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now, did we miss something? When I, when I read this over the last couple weeks, I had to think back to my Sunday school days and think, did I miss the whole part where he's wearing a cloak of camel hair and he's eating locusts and wild honey like John the Baptist because that's what prophets did? Where's the backstory? How did Elijah get to this point? He's standing in the palace in Samaria before Ahab and Queen Jezebel and he's pronouncing judgment for all of their evil. Where did he come from? How did he get in there? Who let him in? Did he sneak in? Where's, what's Elijah all about? Who are his parents? Where did he come from? What does he do? All we know is that he's from Tishbe in Gilead. And if we look at our map again, Tishbe isn't saying much. It's not on the map. If you look up here, you can see Gilead, which is to the east of the Jordan River. And the term Tishbe simply means barren, desolate, wilderness. So Elijah is a wild man from the wilderness, a prophet of God, carrying God's message to the people and he just bursts onto the scene of history in the palace, in the courtroom of Ahab and Queen Jezebel. No backstory given. Elijah's name, I like this. It means El is Jehovah. El e Jah. God is God. Isn't that a good statement? Don't we need to hear that in our lives? God is God. Do you know what Ahab's name means? Father's brother. Father's brother. Man and man. Elijah, God is God. Ahab, man is man. What a declaration of truth. Elijah's from Tishbe and Gilead. He just pops onto the scene. And I love how he says, The Lord before whom I stand. What if we lived our lives with that sort of perspective? That we are ever standing, this place, this spot that we're in currently, is the presence of God. We stand before a holy, omnipotent, all-powerful God. He is in this place, and he dwells within us. If you have trusted Christ as your Savior, we've talked about how the Holy Spirit is the seal of your salvation. He lives within you. God's presence lives within you. So no matter where you stand, the one who dwells within you is greater than the one who is before you. Standing in God's presence. Elijah and Elisha are the only ones who use this phrase, the Lord God before whom I stand. The Bible commentator McLaren, he said this was the very secret power of these men. They had a perspective that they stood before the Lord their God. And he also said this, I love this. One man with God at his back who fears nothing can work marvels. I love that. Elijah boldly, courageously declares that God would not allow dew or rain these many years. Potentially three years of famine, no rain, drought. 
If you look at Deuteronomy 11.16, I think we have it on the screen. God warned Israel that this judgment would come. It says, take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. <clears throat> then the Lord, the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. Drought was a judgment against evil. And you might be thinking, how could a good and loving God judge his own people? That doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem fair. The fact is, God is composed of attributes, characteristics that if they were to be removed, God would cease to be God. God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. God is all-loving, and he's all-just. He's always loving, and he's always just. Because God is always loving, he must always be just. And because God is always just and right and righteous, he is always love. They go hand in hand. God's judgment is an act of love. God cannot stand in the presence of sin. He cannot allow sin to be in his presence. The Apostle Paul says to the church in Rome, all have sinned, and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone sinned. Uh, Pastor Todd Wagner from Watermark Church in Fort Worth, Texas. Great church. He says, it's not that you're as bad as you could be. We can always take a step further in the wrong direction. It's that you're not as good as you should be. You're not as bad as you could be, but you're not as good as you should be. You see, the line is perfection, the glory of God. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And God must judge and punish sin. Hell is a real place, and it was originally intended for the devil and his demons because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should have eternal life. And here's how loving God is, that he would do such a gracious, scandalous, loving thing as allowing his own son, Jesus Christ, to take the punishment of our sin on the cross so that we could have a way of salvation, a redemption, that he would take the punishment for our sin and the judgment that's rightfully ours so that we through faith could accept that free gift and not have to face the punishment and penalty of sin and judgment. God is all loving and all just at the same time. Did Elijah call the drought or did he predict the drought? Was it done by him or simply prophesied by him? McLaren also says this, Elijah did not open and shut the heavens, but his prayer and power moved the hand that opens and no man can shut. You see, through prayer, because we have a relationship with God the Father through faith in Jesus Christ, we now can talk to God the Father. We can access his throne. Boldly I approach his throne, we just sang, where we have all power through God the Father. We can access God's power. There is no more powerful position than when we're on our knees in prayer. And Elijah stands before Ahab, the most evil king of Israel to that point, and he declares, the Lord before whom I stand will not allow it to reign or do to be on the earth for the next number of years. He boldly proclaims and declares his faith in a powerful God. Let's look at verse 2. And the word of the Lord came to him, 
Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. If we could look at our map again. Depart from here. So he's leaving from Samaria. I don't know if you can see the, the yellow typing Samaria. And he's heading back across the Jordan to the land of Gilead. He's going back to his hometown region. God's telling him to get out of Ahab's presence and go and hide in his hometown region. Now, why would God say that? If you know the story of Elijah, you probably know Elijah on Mount Carmel, right? Where he fights the prophets of Baal and they have this big duel, God or Baal, who's going to send down fire from heaven? And he stands and fights. But here God says, run and hide. Here's what I believe. I believe God was going to give Elijah the opportunity in private to experience demonstrations of God's power. Elijah publicly declared his faith in the power of God, and now God was going to privately demonstrate his power to Elijah. God was preparing Elijah in the quiet moments by the water to prepare him for Mount Carmel and for the amazing miraculous works God was going to do in public. <clears throat> it's that man cold. It's catching up with me. I apologize. Verse four, here's what you're going to do, Elijah. Verse four, you shall drink from the brook and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So, so he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that's east of the Jordan, and the ravens, they brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. I thought I heard my little friend pop in here this morning. This is uh, Raven, the raven. You know what I love about ravens? Absolutely nothing. They're a dirty bird. They're always scrounging around garbage. When I was driving that U-Haul truck in the tropical storm with my man cold back from New Brunswick, every time I saw a crow or a raven, it was always next to roadkill on the road, right? Ravens are a symbol of death. Let me read a couple quotes here for you. Mark Schwann says, Ravens became associated with dead and lost souls. Swedish folklore and German stories both connect the raven with death. Deuteronomy tells us that ravens were unclean. You shouldn't eat them. And then I believe it's Leviticus likens the raven to vultures hovering around dead bodies. Now, how comforting would that be if you're Elijah going into the wilderness in a drought and you have no food, you have no preparations, you don't have the backpack, you're not ready for this, and God says, don't worry, I've commanded the bird of death to preserve your life. Think about that. You know, God is so powerful. He can bring life where there is death. God is so powerful. He can provide life from the symbol of death. How incredible is that? When I first read through this passage, I thought, that's disgusting. <laughs> the bird that picks on dead and decaying flesh 
was going to be the one to carry in its beak the meat and bread each morning and each evening for Elijah as he laid next to the brook Cherith. If we look at our map again here, the brook Cherith is on the east of the Jordan. It's back in Gilead, which was Elijah's home region. Do you think the, the thought ever went through Elijah's head, you know, I don't need to put up with this. I can just go home. This is my hometown area. I can go back to my cave or my mama's house or whatever the case was. I can get some good home cooking. I can meet up with my neighbors. I can meet up with friends. I have some community there. I can go back and get the comfortable, traditional service that I'm used to. But God says, I've commanded the ravens there to feed you and to provide for you. Interesting. Verse 7 says, And after a while the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. Matthew Henry, great Bible commentator, preacher, The natural supply of water, which came by common providence, failed. The natural supply failed. But the miraculous supply of food made sure to him by promise failed not. We never read that the ravens stopped coming. It never says that as the brook dried up and the ravens stopped bringing food. It never says that. So we're just left to assume that God's promise to Elijah stood and continued. And it was the natural flow of water that ceased. You see, there's a point in each one of our lives. For some of, it's, for some of us, it's a weekly basis, a daily basis, a moment-by-moment -moment basis where our natural strength and supply will fail. And we need to rely on the supernatural supply, the living water, the bread of life. Sometimes God's got to push us to the brink. You know, it doesn't say the water started going down and then God gave the next instructions. It says the brook dried up. How many days was Elijah without water? I don't know if he had a cup. I don't know if he had a life straw that filters the water as he sips out of the brook. Probably not. Maybe he was cupping it with his hands and it got to a point where there wasn't enough water to get his hands underneath to cup it. Maybe he's got his face right down in the dirty water at this point because it's drying up, sipping whatever was left. And it says the brook was totally dry. There are so many times in life where we step out of the struggle just before God was going to bring the blessing. There are so many times where we cannot hold on in our own strength or faith long enough before God brings the blessing and the next step. And we rely on our own strength and we step back to what we know and we go back to our tradition and to what is comfortable. And Elijah stuck it out until the brook dried up. The rocks are dry and dusty. G.K. Chesterton says, nothing fails like success. Sometimes the success of yesterday holds us back from experiencing the blessing God has for us tomorrow. Sometimes what we know and what we're used to and what we're comfortable with holds us back from experiencing and embracing the miracle that God has next for us. What if that brook never dried up? I don't know how long Elijah was there. Maybe it was weeks. Maybe it was months. What if Elijah grew so accustomed to the brook and it never dried up 
so that he just remained there. I mean, it would still be a cool story, right? Ravens bringing him food. He's drinking from the brook. He made it through the whole drought just laying next to the brook with the ravens bringing him food. That would be great. But how many people know the best is yet to come? The success of yesterday and the miracle that God performed way back when and what God did in my life back then is incredible and I'm thankful, but what God has in store for the future and the potential that God has to work through me in this community in the future is so much greater than what was before. See, I believe in bright days. I believe the best is yet to come. I believe that our story doesn't stop here because God was not done demonstrating his power. And I believe the same God that we serve today is the God back then who brought the food by the ravens. God can do incredible miracles today, just like he did in our story that we're reading. 1 Kings 17, verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him after the brook dried up. Verse 9. Arise and go to Zarephath. Here's the next step. Which belongs to Sidon and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Out of the frying pan, into the fire. That's what Elijah's thinking. If we could pull our map up once again here. If you look to the very top in the center of that map, that little black word that you can't read is Sidon. All the way up there. You remember we've been talking about Elijah's been jumping over the Jordan and back to Gilead next to the brook. Now he's got to travel to the top of that map to Zarephath. You know, Zarephath is over a hundred miles from where Elijah potentially would have been as the crow flies. Anybody get my pun there as the crow flies, right? Catch on. It's the man cold. I, it's slowing me down here this morning. He had to travel all the way to Sidon over a hundred miles. And if he goes as the crow flies, it would be right through Ahab's territory the king that he just stood in front of and said, I'm pronouncing judgment because of your evil. It's going to be a drought. Now he's traveling right through that region. And here, this part blew my mind. I didn't catch this the first time. But if we look in 1 Kings 16.31, it says, Ahab took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians. Jezebel is from Sidon. That's her hometown territory. She's the homecoming queen. She's the princess in Sidon before Ahab marries her and brings her down to Samaria. This evil queen Jezebel that we're going to hear a lot about over the next four weeks is from where Elijah is being called to go. This is sounding worse and worse, isn't it? I think Elijah might just stick by the brook and keep eating the bread and the meat, right? Just wait for the uh, food delivery service that was coming his way instead of going there. Uh, McLaren says this, It looked like Elijah was putting his head in the lion's mouth. You can't get more bold and courageous than to go through Ahab's territory to Jezebel's hometown. But that's not where the struggle, the test, that's not where it ends. You see, the same way that God said, I have commanded ravens there to feed you, he says, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Now, if we know anything about society in these days, widows and orphans were at the bottom of the rung. That's why Jesus says pure religion is this, to meet widows and orphans in their affliction. Because widows and orphans are at the bottom of society. 
So not only did God have in store the bird of death to preserve Elijah's life, now he's got the lowest of the low in society to preserve Elijah's life. And Elijah obeys. He goes. It doesn't say much about the journey. Uh, the longest hike I've ever done straight was 53 kilometers on the Funday footpath. And it was a rough go. It took us like three days. Elijah is going over 100 miles after nibbling on the crackers and the beef jerky that the ravens brought him, having run out of water how long ago? And he makes this trek. I assume it was on foot. But it just says he does it. A faithful guy. Verse 10. So he arose and he went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. The gate of the city is where judgment went down. The gate of the city is where all the social conversation took place. Oftentimes men would sit in the gate of the city and they would chat with one another and talk about what was going on in the community. The fact that this widow is going outside the gate of the city to gather sticks means that she doesn't have any reputation to uphold. She's got nothing left. She's at the end of her rope. And Elijah calls to her in verse 10 and he says, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and he said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. How did Elijah know that this was the right widow? I wondered that because it just seems like he gets to the gate of the city and the first widow I see, that must be her. Because God says, I've commanded a widow there to feed you. So obviously he must be thinking about a specific widow. The first widow Elijah sees, he goes after her. Is it possible that because God dwells outside of time, which is a huge topic that I can't begin to explain because I don't fully understand it myself. Because God dwells outside of time, Elijah's act of speaking to the first widow lined up with God's act of commanding the widow? Is it possible that Elijah spoke to the widow and God tweaked something in her heart and in her faith so that she could obey what Elijah was asking? Because Elijah is giving a big ask here. Water is usually pretty cheap, pretty free, but remember, this is a drought. And this woman was going to take of her own time to draw some water from the well and bring it to this stranger at the gate of the city. And then Elijah goes so far as to say, while you're out, you know, since you're up, since you're running to the kitchen, do you think you could make me a small sandwich at the same time? Sounds a little bold. It sounds like Abraham's servant who went looking for a wife for Isaac and met Rebekah at the well, and she watered his camels also. You remember that? Potentially, God did something in her heart so that she would respond favorably. Verse 12, and she said, as the Lord your God lives. Keep that in mind. She said, the Lord your God. Potentially, she had heard of Elijah before he arrived. As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug, and now I'm gathering a couple sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Can we just take a moment this morning to just be so thankful to God 
for the provision that he's given in our lives. To my knowledge, there's nobody in this room or this community who's in this situation. Who's taking their last small meal and then embracing their family as they say goodbye to this life because they can't afford, they don't have access, they don't have the gift of community to care for them. Can we just be so thankful and praise God for just a moment for his provision in our lives that none of us here this morning are cold, none of us here this morning are underclothed, we don't have shelter, we don't have water, we don't have food, none of us here this morning are for major want in our lives. None of us are starving here this morning because God has provided. Amen? Is that something to be thankful for this morning? Thank you, God. She prepares her last meal so that she and her son can eat it and die. There are people around this world without shelter and clothing and food, without clean drinking water, without community, people who have not recognized and responded to God's love. You know, I wonder if there was ever a thought in Elijah's mind, maybe this is the wrong widow. You know, maybe I acted a little too preemptively. Maybe I should have thought this through. Maybe I should have looked for a widow with some jewelry. Maybe a widow with some servants with her, right? Maybe a widow with a nice oceanfront view on the Mediterranean where I can wait this little drought out. It never says that Elijah thinks that. Elijah proceeds in faith. Have you ever questioned God's leading because it doesn't make sense to you? God is so powerful. Okay, you're still with me. God is so powerful that his power is not contingent on your supply. God doesn't need your bank account. God doesn't need your emotional IQ. God doesn't need you, but he chooses you and wants you for his own. He loves you. What about the widow? Have you ever been asked for help, but it wasn't a good time? Have you ever had somebody approach you who's in a similar difficult situation, but, ah, oh, if you had asked me last week, I had a gift card in my car I could have given you. I had a bottle of Gatorade I could have given you. Now is not a good time. I got to run with my family. I got to do this. I don't have anything prepared. Now is not a good time. God's power isn't contingent on your supply. And Elijah says to her in verse 13, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. Before you have your last meal, why don't you bring me the appetizer so I can enjoy it and then you go have the leftovers for your final meal before you pass with your son. That's a big ask. Verse 14, For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. Until the day. If I was that widow, I'd be tempted to say, Nah, I don't know you. You don't know me. I don't owe you anything. Verse 15, she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household, potentially there was more than just her son. Because why wouldn't it just say her son? It says her household. 
the blessing that God brought because of her faith, is it potential that it reached past the borders of her own family? Is there a potential that her neighbors got to enjoy the blessing? Is there a potential that there were pets in the household? Is there a potential that she was only referring to her oldest son and there were other children? She and he and her household. Verse 16, the jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken by Elijah. God is so powerful. He is so powerful that he can make little into much. Maybe you've seen that in your own life. Matthew 14, 19. Jesus ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. Do you know how many baskets full the disciples collected after everybody had eaten enough? Twelve. How many disciples were there? Is it possible that God was demonstrating his power specifically to the disciples to strengthen their faith? Little is much when God is in it. If that little boy had never have offered his lunch, potentially we would not have this miracle recorded in Scripture. 1 Kings 17, verse 17. The oil and flour didn't run out. It's the first mention of this kind of miracle in Scripture. 1 Kings 17, 17. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. Why does the story go this direction? Why? Weren't the two miracles enough? Didn't God demonstrate his power to a certain capacity and extent that it was enough for the sake of Elijah and for the sake of the widow? But to take her son, to allow her son to pass. Hadn't this widow already been through enough? I mean, her husband passed. She has no social standing. She's collecting sticks at the gate in front of all the men who had gathered there. She's already come to peace with the fact that she and her son are most likely going to die. They're just going to enjoy one last meal. Isn't it almost mean to have the food provided and the life extended just so that the boy could ultimately die again? God's power. You know, the issue wasn't the bread. God was still providing the bread. The oil and the flour hadn't run out. But the situation still ends with death because man cannot live on bread alone. You know, Jesus says that he is the living water. He is the everlasting life. He who partakes of me shall never thirst again, shall never go hungry again. You know, humanitarian efforts are great. And we are called to care for the widow and the orphan. But at the heart of every man is their ultimate need, and that's the need of a savior and a redemption for their sin. And God takes it to this point to show his power 
over death and sin and hell and the grave. The provision was meant to point to the provider. You know, we can get so stuck on the supply and forget about the source, can't we? We can get so stuck on and build a crutch out of the blessings that God has given us and forget that they're all from God's hand anyway. And sometimes when God removes the blessing from us, we feel like the rug's been pulled out from under us when really God is the foundation of our faith. Not the things that he provides, but who he is. Verse 19. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms, and he carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged. And he laid him on his own bed, and he cried to the Lord. Hear the desperation in Elijah's situation. O Lord, my God, you have brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I am sojourning, by killing her son? It's a question. Elijah's struggling to see the purpose behind this, just like the widow is struggling to see the purpose behind this. I just picture this poor widow. You know, Elijah, you asked me for water, and I was happy to get it for you. And then you asked me for bread, and I wasn't sure, but I did it in faith. I gave you bread. And now you're asking for my son? And I just picture this poor widow embracing her son. And it says that Elijah took the son from her arms. You know, God the Father loves us so much that he willingly gave us his son. We didn't have to grasp for salvation from God. God freely gave it to us in the face of his son, Jesus Christ. For God so loved the whole world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Just as this widow embraced her son and was being asked to give him up, so God the Father gave us his son freely to speak to our dead situation. And then the passage goes on in verse 21. Elijah stretched himself upon the child three times, and he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. Just as Elijah covered the boy three times, so God's own son was covered in the tomb for three days. God demonstrates his love to us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We see the forgiveness and the love and the grace from God the Father in the death and suffering of his son, Jesus Christ. But then we see God's ultimate display of power in the resurrection the fact that after Jesus was dead for three days, God raised him back to life. So that not only can we have forgiveness of sins, but we can have the gift of new and abundant life because of Jesus Christ. That's the message in this story today. That's the picture of Jesus Christ that we get in this story of Elijah raising the widow's son. Because it's not just history, it's his story. And all these pages point 
to Jesus Christ. God is so powerful. He can bring life to your dead situation through his own son's sacrifice. God is powerful. See your son lives. Take a look with your own eyes. You know, widow, you couldn't see it until it happened. You couldn't understand how this was going to work. You couldn't see how God was going to bring life to your dead situation. You couldn't understand why God has you in this place at this time. But now look at what God has done. You know, did you know that there is coming a day when you're going to get to see the story behind your struggle? And you're going to get to understand why you had to go through all that. And if you haven't gone through pain and you aren't going through pain, then you're going to go through pain in this life. That's just the fact of a sin-cursed world. But the truth is, God is working all those things together for good. <clears throat> the good, the bad, and the ugly. God has the power to work it all together for ultimate good. And although God must judge sin, God is also totally loving. And God has provided a way of redemption for all of us today through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Verse 24. The woman said to Elijah, Now I know. I don't know how it all worked. I don't know where the flour and the oil continued to come from. I don't know how my son was dead and is alive again. But now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. We started this passage this morning by talking about how Elijah stood in front of Ahab and made a declaration, a courageous, faithful declaration of the power of God. And then we end this passage by hearing the widow's declaration of faith in the truth of God's message. Elijah, his faith preceded confirmation. He had to, to declare his faith in God's power before God demonstrated his faith. And it resulted in the faith of this widow claiming that God's word through the prophet Elijah was truth. This is the first of 10 resurrection accounts in the Bible. And every time it points to the authenticity and the authority of the message. The fact that Jesus raised from the dead puts a stamp of authenticity on the whole gospel. Today we can believe the message of the cross because Jesus actually rose from the dead. Our story started with Elijah and his declaration. And it ends with the widow and her declaration. And I want to encourage you that Faithful declarations in the power of God should be a consistent part of your spiritual disciplines. David did that all the time through the Psalms. He spoke to himself, my soul. I want to read a Psalm for you today and I want to end this way. And I want to invite the worship team to come back as I'm reading this Psalm. This is going to be our final prayer and our final praise uh, before we sing this morning. It's Psalm 147. Can we all stand as I read this? I believe we're going to have it on the screen as well. Psalm 147. It says, Praise the Lord. 
For it is good to sing praises to our God. It is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted, and he binds up their wounds. Think of the widow and her son. Verse 4, he determines the numbers of the stars, and he gives to them all their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving and make melody to our God with the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. Even though Baal is the false god of the dew and the rain, God can challenge him any day of the week. He makes grass grow on the hills. Verse 9, he gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. The ravens fed Elijah because God feeds the ravens. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise God, O Zion. For he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of wheat, the flour and oil that never ran out. He sends out his commands on the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. So praise the Lord. 